Securing the software supply chain is a pretty big order, pretty tall order. And I think all hands on deck or, you know, the more the merrier. Uh, we all have parts that we can play. Um, so let's, let's play. Hi, welcome to the Open at Intel podcast. I'm Katherine Druckmann, an open source evangelist here at Intel. I had a chat with Jessica Mars, who heads up our open source program office, about the role an OSPO can play in securing open source software. I think you'll enjoy this exploration into the world of the OSPO. And as always, please join us again for more important and fun open source conversations. You can find more from the team at open.intel at open.intel.com and at open.intel on Twitter. I am talking to Jessica Mars, who heads up our OSPO here on the Open Ecosystem team at Intel. And first of all, I'm really excited because I think everyone can benefit from more conversations about the role of the OSPO. So I just want to put that out there before we get started. I think, you know, I think probably every OSPO is a little bit different, right? Yeah. So I really, you know, we really want to get your perspective on this. And for those who aren't familiar or work in organizations who do not have an OSPO, I think this is also going to be really interesting. So just to get started, I thought maybe, could you go into a little bit of detail about what is the traditional role as you see it of the OSPO? What, what do OSPOs do in your eyes? Great question. And as you, as you alluded, every OSPO is different. Every organization's OSPO is different. But I think mostly or, or the most most basic definition of an OSPO is that it's this centralized unit within an organization that manages and coordinates that organization's open source activities, uh, which include things like governance, compliance, and community engagement. Of course, it's a little different at Intel, you know, community engagement that's actually over in your organization. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, our, the OSPO is involved as far as, you know, engaging the community with, with good code and secure code and behaving ourselves like good open source citizens. But that's that's typically how I would define an OSPO. And then the responsibilities of an OSPO, um, there's sort of four main ones. The first one is managing the open source policies for the company. Mm -hmm. um, the next one is facilitating open source contributions. Um, the third one is to promote open source adoption and you know use within the company, help, help get an open source mindset. Um, across the organization, and last but not least, managing legal risks. I think that's the reason why OSPOs were originally created. Um, it was really about license compliance and um, helping companies manage their risk in legal risk in using open source software, making sure that they weren't inadvertently, you know, putting GPL code into what they wanted to have proprietary, and making sure that all of their distributions comply with all of the various license obligations. So. That's what I would say. I, I love that you your say your mileage may vary. <laughs> <laughs> yes, always, right? I love that you say good open source citizens because, man, that is that. I feel like that that's a whole episode to itself. By the way, we could talk for <laughs> at least an hour about what does it mean to be a good open source Indeed, citizen. Yeah, but probably people don't agree <laughs> necessarily. Yeah, I know, right? We'll start. We'll, we'll start a a long thread about that on online. Um, so. Since I have a special interest, let's say, in security, yes. I wanted to ask you, yes. 
everybody's talking about software supply chain security right now, right? It's very, it's important. It's an important conversation. It's right? a hot topic. It is a sure. hot topic. And it's so important, right? And, and we're, we're open source people here. I'm heavily biased toward open source. And I'm very, I freely admit that frequently on this podcast and elsewhere. But there are some challenges unique to open source, you know, as a developer, as a consumer, all of these things. What do you see as the supply chain challenges that are unique to open source software that an OSPO can address? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, first of all, there's a lot there, right? That's a big question. Yeah. I don't think the OSPO can do it all by themselves. Um, But I mean, open source is just unique in in itself because of its its whole nature, right? This Mm -hmm. collaborative, decentralized nature, highly distributed, involving people and organizations from all around the world. You might not even know who some the true identity of some of the people that you're working with. You know, so if there comes a security issue, it can it can be a challenge to know who to go to or who to reach out to or how to how to reach out to someone Um, because they're really just a a GitHub ID somewhere out out there in the uh, in the universe. But what is identity? right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but where I think the OSPO can help is OSPOs have spent a lot of time working to understand, um, code bases and communities and who players are and sort of the norms of the different communities, you know, whether they're a a BDFL or some sort of neutral governance entity, um, ways to, ways to communicate, ways to get in touch with, with projects um, just based on the licensing work that they've done, and that can be extended to to security work as well. Um, and we can also take that knowledge of how open source communities work and help educate the security professionals within our company. Um, I'm actually thinking back to an incident, a uh, security incident last year, and some well, and going back to the sort of the anonymity. Um, and they're like, well, can't you can't you call up the project maintainer and have them fix this thing? And I was like, well, in this case, no, <laughs> actually, I can't. And that's not exactly how it works. And and we can't just demand them. You know, in fact, what we should do is we should propose a change. You know, that's sort of the the currency or the way that you communicate in open source. If you want something fixed, you don't just say, I want this thing fixed. You know, and, and demand that that someone do something by a certain date. But you you uh, open a pull request or you you know you you propose a fix yourself. Um, you become part of the part of the solution. So I think that's one way that an OSPO can can help both in educating internally and then using some of its muscle um, or you know knowledge to uh, to work in the outside world. Yeah, that's a good point. I think I think for for somebody like me and probably you, we've been around open source for so long. I I, I admire the fact that you are able to, let's say, be very empathetic for people who, who don't necessarily know how open source is made. It's, it's really hard, right, to put yourself in the position of, oh, wait, there, there are different ways and we, we need to kind of bring them into this culture in order to understand how things work because it, it's challenging. And I think it's important to not take certain knowledge for granted. You don't, you're not That's born knowing how open source communities work, right? So right. it's nice that you have, you know, we have a guide well, you know, I was going to say that that's something that I think is really a, a big part of the OSPO. It's it's about educating, right? Yeah. We want people to be good citizens, but how can you be good citizens if you don't kind of know or understand the lay of the land or or what right. the culturally accepted norms are? And so the OSPO is is in a way that that guide. So how does your expertise or how does expertise in governance and compliance and community engagement 
translate to a more secure ecosystem? So yeah, I don't want to say that OSPOs are the groups that say no or that they're bossy <laughs> or that they're bureaucrats, um, but <laughs> policies are really sort of the bread and butter of the open source program office. And uh, most OSPOs are going to have a lot of experience in drafting policies, policies that are then understood and implemented by software development engineers, whereas perhaps not to say that another organization might not, but just that's day in and day out what we do. And so I think taking that, that sort of familiarity with the audience and knowing, knowing how to speak to the audience and knowing how to get one's point across to that audience is something very valuable that the, the OSPO can provide. You know, they've been for years saying, okay, these licenses are okay in these circumstances, these licenses are not okay in these circumstances. It's not really hard to imagine extending it so that you're saying, and these kind of dependencies or these kind of libraries mm -hmm. are okay to use, or these are the kind of things that you should stay away from. It's, it's, it's an education process, uh, a counseling process. Um, mm -hmm. But it, again, it's something that the OSPO does day in and day out. And yeah. because we do it day in and day out, we're already a familiar voice for yeah. uh, the developers who need to hear the message as opposed to, you know, coming from some, some other organization that they've never heard of before, uh, all of a sudden coming down from on high with mandates about, you know, security of this or security that. Yeah, that's a, that's a great, that's a great point. They, they know you as, as a friendly entity, right? They know that you were, you were the source to go for, for a little handholding. And I hope they think we're a friendly entity. They might just think that we're, you know, a pain in the butt entity, but you know, that generally, okay, no, well, no, there's no, a good no, reason no. why they're doing the thing. <laughs> there is a good reason. There's a good reason. I, I'm, you know, hey, I'm biased. I, I, I know and like you and, and your team. So I know oh, you to be you. a friendly entity. <laughs> so I hope that developers see you that way as well. Um, so, okay, so when you talk about, again, being a resource, that kind of compliance resource as well. Right. Um, so well, how another do you thing we are, Well, I was going to say Go another ahead. thing that, that the OSPO does, OSPO has eyes, right? So OSPO is, is monitoring. They're seeing all sorts of this mm. open source software consumption across the enterprise. And that gives you, you know, what's being used and where um, by having that sort of vision of the inventory the OSPO is actually in a pretty great position to be able to say, hey, these are projects that are super important for the company. You know, let's make a proposal. I think that we should be more active in this community. We should be making it more robust. Or we should help harden it. We should pay the developers. I don't know what the correct answer is. You know, it might be different for different different organizations, different OSPOs. Um, but having that, that position of visibility, I think, um, is, is another advantage that the, the OSPO has compared to other organizations in terms of being able to highlight that, you know, where is their risk for the company um, yeah. and coming up with strategies to help promote security in those projects or in those components. So again, when you're, when you're talking about, you know, again, being a, a resource for developers, I, I, a topic near and dear to my heart is upstream upstream contribution, contributing mm -hmm. back upstream to various projects that you're getting benefit from, right? How do you help educate developers about best practices? And in addition to that, how do you how do you communicate that it's an opportunity more than a burden? Because to me, like I, I as a developer, I always felt like I I wanted to 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 follow best practices just for my own my own sanity, right? My own confidence. You know, I re I remember I would go to people in the community that I was I was contributing to, 
and, mm-hmm. and ask for advice on giving better code reviews, on being a better contributor, communicating more effectively within the community. I wonder how you approach those issues. So I would say, again, education is important. And going back to that idea of being a good citizen in the community, mm-hmm. um, talking about upstream, I mean, the ways that we behave upstream, uh, whether we submit fixes uh, for CVEs upstream, any sort of assistance we can offer to upstream projects, I think are are helpful, whether maybe it's not code, maybe there are other resources or it's documentation or reaching out to, to try to influence them to help prioritize the particular fixes, coordinating funding or, or rewards or something for projects that fix mm-hmm. high severity CVEs in a timely manner. I think those are all, all things that OSPOs can do that help promote best practices and best known methods uh, within the community. Um, also participating in events, going, going to events, uh, talking with folks, keeping up with what's going on in development communities, staying up to date with the latest open source trends and best practices, um, as well as building relationships with other users and contributors is, is a way that we can help promote best practices and strengthen the software security supply chain. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I think sometimes we focus too much on the code, right? We, we think, we think in terms of machines and code and, and, and we, for, we, we don't forget, but we, we, it's always good to have a reminder of the human aspect of, of software development, especially in an open source community. It's always good to be building those building those relationships and bridges. Yeah, yeah. We're all it's all humans at the end of the day, or at least for now it is. <laughs> for now, yeah. Let's, for now, that's a whole other conversation. Our, our next episode, <laughs> Chat GPT. <Our> next ep- <laughs> so, so we talked about upstream contribution best practices. Uh, what about uh, consumption best practices? How does that differ, or or do you see it as is quite similar in, in your role anyway? So I see the OSPO role in consumption as really helping people to learn how to make good decisions about what they're using. Um, and I, I don't think it's terribly hard, but for example, if you had a choice between two two libraries that essentially do the same thing and one has a pretty active user community and you, you, know, you look in the repo and you see that issues are responded to on a relatively timely basis. And then there's another one that has been dormant for four years. Um, you know, which, which one's the better choice? <laughs> so just to help people make better decisions and, and to think through the consequences of their decisions, you know, is it better to have, I, I go, you know, I'm sure there's actually a, a term for this and I don't know it. Um, but sort of the least, it's not the least privilege, but you know, if you only need a, a small function do you really need to take on a huge entire library or can you find the small function? Can you go down mm. to the smallest part that you need right. and sort of make better decisions that way and, and not be right. taking on the overhead of, of, of a larger component or a larger project? Yeah. I think that's, that's also yeah great advice because again, you, unnecessary bloat is never a good thing, right? That reminds me, this is probably a great time to plug a, an earlier episode with our, our friend Ryan Ware, who we who was a lovely person that we get to work with, who who actually went over a lot of these in detail, some of these consumption best practices. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Everyone so. should check that out. Yes, Ryan Ware is yeah. wonderful. So kind of switching gears a little bit, what message would you do you communicate to developers about the benefits of open source, especially those who are maybe not so immersed in the community, while also driving home the significance of best practices as they relate to developing in the open. In other words, 
I hate to say without scaring them off, but there is a, there's a different, there's a slightly different burden, right? When you're developing out in the open and every, you know, when you have people you don't know scrutinizing your pull requests and all of those things, where, how do you communicate all of those intricacies while still promoting the benefits of open source? Well, I think the, the great benefit or the thing, the thing about open source or working in the open that, and this might sound kind of corny, but it sort of forces you to to be your better self. Yes, it forces I love that. you to try to code clearly, mm-hmm. to make useful comments, to communicate effectively, concisely, and those are all things that I think just make you a better a better employee and developer and, and person. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, I, I will say, yes, it is scary <laughs> to yeah. know that you have all eyes looking at you or many eyes looking at you, that your actions are being scrutinized. But once you get used to that, I think the communications excellence just sort of becomes more natural. And um, developers I've talked to say there's no way they ever want to go back to developing proprietary software. There's the benefits that you get doing it in the open. Because really, so even though people are, are looking at your code, and maybe you're worried that they're judging you or something, mm-hmm. I think overall the open source community or communities are are very welcoming places and mm-hmm. are rooting for people to succeed. They they want you they want your project to be successful. If they're providing feedback, it's not because they're yeah. trying to tear it down, it's because they're they're genuinely trying to help make it better. Um, and I think the the benefit of that just something clicks for people and they they never want to go back to the old way. That's great. I, I, you know, I agree. Again, I've, I've been there. And even when you're, when you are using open source software, writing code that runs on open source software, if you're still doing it in a little bit of a silo, there's less, there can be less pressure. But like you say, once you get over the fear of putting yourself out there and doing very public contribution, it, it makes you better. It makes you better at it. And, and people are kinder always than, than you might be afraid of right <laughs> there i think so in my yeah. experience in my experience that's that hasn't always been the case but i think increasingly that is the case i, I think so too i think increasingly i mean there's always going to be brilliant jerks right who right say or, or, or write hurtful things um but i think there's there's definitely over the, the last decade been a huge push to be more welcoming and to be more inclusive mm-hmm. and um you know, to, to try to have more empathy because you're absolutely right. At the end of the day, we're all humans still. Yeah. yeah. And some communities are, are even are particularly kind. So find you find your, Indeed. you find your home, find your home and, you know, see if there's a, a code of conduct and, you know, if it's a community that, that works for you um, or that, that feels like home or feels welcoming. And I, yeah. I think, I think a lot of the fear is is probably unfounded. Maybe this is a topic near and dear to your heart. I hope so. How does legal risk play into this conversation? Ah, well, you know, so OSPOs, of course, uh, have spent quite a lot of time helping to manage legal risks associated with using and contributing to open source software. Uh, So they're, again, looking primarily at the licenses, understanding what sort of rights are being given or given away as the case may be Mm -hmm. if you're contributing to code. 
um, and making sure that the organizations are, are complying with open source licenses. In the case of security, um, so it's, it's interesting because all open source licenses have massive disclaimers, right? Mm. It's, you know, not guaranteed to, to work or anything, dis- disclaimers of warranty and liability. Um, I feel like it's not so much a legal risk that, that we're managing in terms of security, but more of a reputational risk. Although I, I should walk that back slightly because there was some talk in the um, aftermath of Log4j about there being legal risk. Um, and I found that very interesting. Uh, I was like, well, how, how are they going to assign that? Because, you know, it's all disclaimed up the wazoo. Um, but there, there could be, uh, through legislation, there could be legal risk put on suppliers or producers of open source software or redistributors of open source software. And so then uh, I see that as just being another another risk uh, factor that the OSPO helps to juggle. You just put it into the, into the calculus and it becomes another vector in the formula. How do you see your role in managing things like CVEs? Um, so or dependency management. I see the OSPO as having a, being a communicator, again, being an, an educator. Um, so, and again, as sort of having this inventory of knowing, knowing what's being used where in case developers don't have automatic alerts or they're not watching, um, letting folks know when there's a CVE that affects them and helping to coordinate the response. It would be very unfortunate if, you know, within the company, we had to fix it a hundred times. It'd be great if we fixed it once. And then everybody uh-huh. could could benefit from that, um, but that's that's where I see the OSPO is playing a role. It's in the awareness and the communication, not necessarily in the the actual remediation of right, the CVE, right. but certainly tracking CVEs for some of the most uh, the most commonly used packages, or the most commonly used components. I think that's something that an OSPO can do. So we we've talked quite a bit so far about sort of the internal role of, a, of an OSPO, I think the inward facing role. But I wondered if we could talk a little bit about the external role, right? You, you, you are engaged with external organizations, organizations, companies, uh, non, you know, nonprofits, governing bodies, all of these things. How does that work further the cause of, of, uh, of security, of securing open source software? Well, so OSPOs can can work with external security groups to, you know, help promote best practices. And again, you know, as you mentioned earlier, in open source, sometimes we just think about the code, we forget about all the other stuff. So maybe I'm not a security expert, but I bring other things to the table. Um, I have other ways that I can help, help, uh, for example, OpenSSF. Um, I've been uh, talking with OpenSSF about some secure um, software guiding principles. And again, it's not a traditional role necessarily for the OSPO, but hey, here's something. I know how to do policies. I know how to communicate with people. And I think this would be a, a good and useful thing. Can I contribute this? Um, so there's an opportunity for, for OSPOs or for folks from OSPO to work with external agencies or external foundations, external groups uh, to help help where they can. What is it we, we like to say? Chopping wood and carrying water, right? You saw an opportunity. You see an opportunity. There you go. You, you, we have, you have knowledge to share. You have opinions to share, even, frankly. It takes... We do. It takes a lot of perspectives, I think, to solve complex problems. So when you have something to offer, you see an opportunity. So that's, that's what is. I think the, the external role is, that, that everybody has a... There's a, part, there's a part for everybody or something, ah, like you it. know. I like um, 
and and so we just go there. At the end of the day, I think everyone wants to produce good software, legal software. I, I want to produce non-infringing software that's not dangerous or that's that's not exploitable. And I, I certainly have I have greater strength in one area, but I'm not without powers in, in the other areas. Um, and so I'm going to reach across the aisle. I'm going to work with security folks inside and outside the company and see if there isn't some way that we can help move everything forward. That's great. It gives me optimism, great optimism to, to have these conversations. I think a lot of security conversations can be about um, scary things. It's a bit negative, what can go wrong. But, but when I have conversations like this, it makes me far more optimistic. I enjoy it. Yay. Um, yeah. So, so we, we, we've covered a lot of, a lot of your work. I wondered if there's anything that, that I didn't get to that you would like to cover that we haven't talked about yet. No, just that an OSPO shouldn't, shouldn't necessarily feel constrained or feel that, that security, security isn't or can't be part of their domain. Uh, OSPOs, members of OSPOs have knowledge that they can share um, with other OSPOs, with, again, with other contributors and other consumers, both inside and outside of organizations Securing the software supply chain is a pretty big order, pretty tall order. Yeah. And I think all hands on deck or, you know, the more the merrier. Uh, we all have parts that we can play. Um, so let's let's play. Let's collaborate and work together and make the whole greater than the sum of its parts. Oh, that's perfect. A perfect note to end on. Thank you so much for that. Thank you again for talking to me. Yeah, this is this has been great. I hope this has been really useful to people who may not understand the role of an OSPO at all. This might is a great intro to OSPO in general, but also to security. So yeah, thank you very much for that. And I hope everybody listening uh, takes something away from it and goes back and listens to the episode about consuming open source software securely. <laughs> and love your OSPO. Yeah. Yes, your OSPO, the OSPO is your friend. <laughs>